Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences. So there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Welcome to In Her Shoes. I'm Lindsay Peoples, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of The Cut. On this show, I get to talk to people that we love and admire, or some that we just find interesting. We'll explore how they found their path and what maybe have gotten in their way, and how they brought others along now that they've arrived. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley has been a trailblazer pretty much her entire political career. In 2010, she was the first Black woman elected to the Boston City Council, and then would later go on to become the first Black woman elected Congress from Massachusetts. As a member of Congress, she's been a constant voice on issues like reproductive rights, health care, and criminal justice reform. In this episode, we talked about her political career, her journey dealing with alopecia, and what she's hopeful about in this current political climate. You probably don't even remember, but this was probably like four, three years ago when I used to run Teen Vogue. I interviewed <gasps> a long time ago. Oh my goodness, that was during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, that feels was... like it was eight years ago, but it's probably three years ago. <laughs> yeah, that was during the pandemic. I remember yeah. that. Okay, so on the show, we always ask our guests um, about their literal shoes since the show is called In Her Shoes. Um, so we got to get a little fashion fix in before we talk about everything. Um, so either what shoes you have on right now or what are your favorite shoes to wear? Okay. Well, my favorite shoes to wear are stilettos. Mm. And I prefer either a brown girl nude, which is very hard to find. A brown, a brown girl, because we are not. But I have a lot of recommendations if you need. Because we are not suntan, okay. And, I, <laughs> and there's a couple of black-owned brands, but I've had difficulty. Um, they sell out so quickly. But yeah. um, I love a brown girl nude stiletto. I also like. I have a pair of uh, from consignment purple Ferragamos that were gifted to me by a dear friend because purple was my mother's favorite shoe, mm. and also. Um, she had a pair of Ferragamos that were like an indulgent um, gift for herself. Right. And um, as a way to honor her, uh, they they um, gifted me with these uh, consignments, open-toed, uh, purple Ferragamos. That's beautiful. I love that. I love that. And then what would you say it actually feels like to be in your shoes in your life at this moment? I think my shoes feel... Um, Depending on the day, too big or too small. 
<laughs> and, you know, I, I speak often about what it is to be a black woman representing multiple marginalized identities and that, you know, dual dichotomy of being hyper visible and invisible all at the same time. So I think, you know, uh, that's exactly why sometimes the shoes feel um, too big or too small, depending right. on the moment of hyper visibility or invisibility. Um, but I think the biggest thing about my shoes is that uh, I'm always walking with a sense of purpose and conviction, um, but also responsibility. You know, my mother, may she rest in peace and power, was so often reminding me that to those who much is given, you know, much is required, much is expected. Right. And I feel um, inordinately blessed to be in the position that I'm in to have access to platform and the power of convening and the power of the pen and the letterhead and the power of the movement. But I also feel a tremendous sense of responsibility um, to steward all of those iterations of power righteously um, and responsibly to to meet the moment. Right. So you were the first Black woman elected to the Boston City Council, first Black woman elected to Congress from Massachusetts. Walk me through what it's like to be so many firsts and and to deal with that responsibility, though you may love it, I'm sure that it has to have a lot of uh, pressure and a lot of emotions behind that. Again, responsibility, you know, to be entrusted with um, the unique blessing and sometimes uh, burden of being a first and all that comes along with that. I, you know, I have to make it known, though, that I've never pursued anything to be a first. I only wanted to um, create space for more voices to be heard, call uh, the question of different questions. You know, I think that's the power of a representative government is that people are going to call different questions, uh, shake the table with that lived experience and that perspective that did not exist before uh, they took up that chair, uh, wore those shoes um, or entered that space. You know, so I would say it's an honor um, it's a tremendous responsibility. It is at times very lonely. And, you know, I would say sometimes maybe I rob myself of the full victory of being a first because I remember my first election to the Boston City Council breaking that concrete 100 year old ceiling as the first woman of color, first black woman to serve on that body. Um, that a lot of people wanted to give me awards simply for winning and mm -hmm. i really balked at this and you know was like i you know I, I don't call me about any more awards because i won a race i still have to do something and it right. was an elder who who challenged me and said don't deny us that uh, that um the fact that uh that you made it to the other side that you broke this ceiling that you're blazing this trail is is notable of celebration mm -hmm. um but that was just really me allowing the most negative of naysayers, you know, I was sort of absorbing that narrative and denying myself the victory. So sort of like, if they really do believe that I won based on identity politics, then they don't see my victory as being one of strategic thought, of black brilliance, of um, a message and strategy, strategy that was effective and resonant, you know? And so that was me really letting white supremacy win which which was sort of convincing me that I had not earned that victory, mm -hmm. uh, that something was a fluke, an anomaly, chance, or even charity. 
And of course, none of those things were true. And so I, I'm, this is why it's so important that we are intentional about those intergenerational exchanges and that I actively listened to that elder because she said, you know, you're not just denying yourself, you're denying us. I didn't think I'd see that in my lifetime. I've lived in mm -hmm. Boston my whole life and we want to share in that celebration. So now I'm much more stridently unapologetic, not only about um, my conviction, my truth telling, my justice seeking, but also my joy. And that means holding space for the victories as well. The victims of the movement, you know, my own electoral victories um, and being okay with that. Take me back to the moment where you decided or said to yourself that, you know, I think I want to be a politician. Oh, gosh. I have to say, even when you say that word, it's still I have like a negative and visceral sort of <laughs> anti-reaction to it. Um, you know, my sister in service, Representative Cori Bush, refers to herself as a, a politivist, um, a hybrid of activist and politician. I think mm -hmm. we're always looking for other ways. Like I've said, I'm a servant leader, uh, a public servant, yeah. you know, an elected official, anything but a politician, uh, because there does seem to be a self-serving negative connotation to that. Um, but I will say when I ultimately made the jump into electoral politics, like most women, it was something that I was recruited for. I had not been personally calculating some electoral run or political ascension. Um, quite the opposite. I was an aide at the time to United States Senator John Kerry. Prior to that, I'd been an aide to uh, Congressman Joseph P. Kennedy II, um, which is very serendipitous now because the office that I started in as an intern, unpaid, working three paid jobs, 25 plus years later, I'm now the congresswoman for that seat. Um, but again, I didn't calculate, you know, or plan any, any of this. So I was an aide for 16 years, House, Senate, um, and I really loved being the person behind the person. Mm -hmm. um, very much so. I found great impact in that, much reward. I knew I was a value add. A lot of people underestimate, you know, I tell people when they come to Washington and they're like, we're trying to get on your calendar. I'm like, no, get on my staff's calendar. People really underestimate that they are the ones whispering in the ear of the principal, pulling the principal's elbow, planting mm -hmm. the seeds for issues with which to advocate. They're the ones advising members on how to vote on a bill um, or whether or not to write one. Uh, and so I found a lot of honor, responsibility, and reward and being the person behind the person. And so in 2009, uh, some people from an organization called Mass Vote approached me and said, uh, while I was an aide to John Kerry, this is going to be the first year that a black woman is elected to the Boston City Council and it's going to be you. And I said, no, most certainly not. Um, <laughs> I have no desire or designs on that. I love being the person behind the person. Um, and then there started being all these rumors at that time, blogging was just starting to be really big. I'm really dating myself. And I remember as the rumors were starting to um, swirl about that I might be looking at this, um, a blogger had written a piece about me entitled Pretty and Polished, but Not Ready for Prime Time. Mm. And and I saw that and I said, oh, yeah, I'm I'm an Aquarius. I'm a sensitive soul anyway. I mean, that's why we're the ultimate humanitarians. But, you know, we get our feelings hurt easily. And I said, <laughs> you know, I'm not I'm not wired for this. I mean, I was upset about this little blog headline. And I said, absolutely not. I remember being in the aisle at CVS, like emotionally eating some peeps. 
you know, or something in the aisle, like no way. Um, but then honestly, as someone who is a very spiritual person who relies on a lot of prayer and meditation and being still in the midst of uncertainty, it really did just come to me one morning. You know, this is an extension of the work that you've already done. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no one championing the needs of girls. There's such a disproportionate emphasis on how at and proven risk black and brown boys are. But there was no one doing that, telling the stories of girls. I remember ultimately when I did run, even for my home community of black folks, um, and that's what I mean by my home community because Boston's an adopted home for me. I'm originally from Chicago. But even my home community of black folks were like, you know, it's the boys that are dying and you want to, you said you're running for the girls. And I said, well, this isn't the oppression Olympics. You know, I'm my brother's keeper and my sister's keeper. What I'm saying yeah. is that you're focused on the boys because they are dying quite literally in front of us on these streets disproportionately because of the gun violence, public health crisis, and because of gang violence and lack of opportunity and poverty and all those things. But the girls are slowly dying right in front of you. And no one is creating a space for their voices. And I wanted to champion gender specific and responsive programming and policies. And people thought that was the work of a nonprofit, but I proved it was the work of municipal government. The first budget cycle as a Boston city councilor, every agency and department that came before me, I asked them about the girls and, and their answers were monosyllabic. Mm -hmm. And by the second budget cycle, they came with cross tab multicolored binders because they knew someone was gonna call the question, me. And that right. is the true importance and impact of a representative government. Yeah. I do want to actually talk about Chicago because I know you've been in the activism space for a while and worked as a community organizer when you were in Chicago. But what is it like and what would you say the biggest differences are, you know, when you were strictly, you know, working in activism space and now on the other side working more so in policy? Well, I, I was raised in Chicago, but I left at 18 to attend Boston University. So I was very much in in my infancy. I mean, I, I did a volunteer on a mayoral campaign when I was 10. Um, I did do a fair amount of community service with my church and, um, you know, in community. But I was very much in my infancy in terms of activism and organizing. What I would say is that what drew me to Boston is that Boston and Chicago have many similarities. They're both cities of neighborhoods. Um, they both have mayors that are, are mayors for a very, very long time. Um, and so it's it's sort of like working class immigrant um, enclaves. Mm -hmm. um, and something that I wanted to see uh, replicated here in Boston was something that I saw from a huge influencer in my life, and that's Harold Washington, who really built, I think, the first rainbow coalition of, um, of an electoral uh, movement across class and race. And I did find when I came to Boston, there seemed to be a lot of invisible lines and, and territories. And um, I didn't walk with that. You know, having lived and been raised in Chicago, I did live in a city that at one point had a female mayor. I did mm -hmm. live in a city that at one point had a black mayor. I did have a United States Senator and Carol Mosley Braun. So I think I did bring with me that sense of self-agency, determination, unapologetic blackness, and was not limited by a lot of those invisible territorial lines. Right. about where you could go, where you could socialize, where you could eat, where you could organize, who you should vote for. I didn't uh, suffer from that.
Did you know only 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy? Crazy thing to hear, right? But it's part of the reason why Nature's Sunshine is here to help you upgrade your wellness with simple daily additions that work to fuel your body with the nutrition it needs and may not be getting. For more than 50 years, Nature's Sunshine has been harnessing the healing power that Mother Nature has to offer. Their new power line focuses on providing you with superfood and whole food nutrition to support your metabolic health. From their Power Greens that has over 200 plant-based nutrients and two full servings of veggies for gut health and daily focus, to their Power Beats for better performance and enhanced blood flow that you feel immediately. Not to mention their Power Meal, which contains 25 grams of premium plant-based protein, gut-friendly fiber, and a powerful mushroom blend for immunity. This entire power line will support you in feeling your best by giving your body the nutrition it needs. The power products work synergistically when taken together, but are also great on their own. Plus, the full line is vegetarian, gluten-free, and non-GMO with no added sugar. And when you subscribe and thrive, you'll save each month and enjoy free shipping. Get 30% off the power line for a limited time. Use the code POWER30. Just go to naturesunshine.com. That's naturesunshine.com. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. So we're going to fast forward to when you were elected into Congress, and obviously there were a group of you progressive women of color that really amazing blew up in the media, dubbed the squad. What was that like to actually experience that and to see it blow up in, in the media is such a big deal? I love that you say dub the squad because it's not like we self-named ourselves. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, it is very much a media uh, construct, you know, if you will, um, which doesn't make it any any less real. It's just it was not something we self-appointed ourselves per se. The origin story of that, it was the freshman orientation for the Congressional Progressive Caucus. That was where I met Representative Omar for the first time, where I met Representative Tlaib for the first time. Um, Representative Ocasio-Cortez and I, we had met once in person and I had sent volunteers up to work on her campaign. But there was not a relationship. There was an immediate kinship and sisterhood, but not a relationship. We were, right. we were all asked to do an interview together because we were each first. Uh, I'm the first uh, person of color to represent the Commonwealth of Massachusetts in its 230 year history. Not just the first black woman, first person of color, period. Um, and uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, you know, became the youngest woman elected to Congress at that time. And she and I had both unseated incumbents. We were the only people in our Democratic caucus who had done that. So we had a very unique path. Um, mm -hmm. And then of course, Representative Tlaib, uh, first Palestinian and um, uh, one of the first two Muslim women, and then Representative Omar, uh, one of the first Muslim women to serve in Congress. And so we all represented first, and they asked us to do this interview together. At the end of the interview, um, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, being uh, the youngest of the brood and, and the most uh, sort of uh, adept at uh, social media, said, you know, why don't I take a, a selfie? 
And uh, she said, what should I call it? And then she just put hashtag squad goals, which is, you know, is very common yeah. vernacular on social media. I'm sounding like such an auntie right now, but I am. So, whatever. <laughs> so um, she, she posted that and the photo went viral. Because the other component of that photo is that the backdrop was uh, some white, old white men. Because uh, there are many paintings like that around the various buildings that we're in. And so the uh, journalists had wanted that photo because they thought it was such an interesting contrast. So that photo went viral. And it went viral for um, all of the ways in which it was representative and, and symbolized progress. Um, it spoke to uh, the most marginalized, uh, many felt just the power of representation in that image, particularly against the contrast of this painting behind us. But it was also very polarizing because there were, were many for whom um, this picture of powerful representation of, uh, of women, of, of um, BIPOC women uh, representing multiple marginalized identities and taking up these seats filling these shoes, uh, if you will, um, was offensive and frightening. And so it struck a resonant chord, it struck a polarizing chord. So what that felt like in real time is, again, we had an immediate kinship because we're all first in some way, but we also sort of trauma bonded because as we were put on the sideline of the former occupant of the White House and all who supported him, uh, it left us vulnerable to um, death threats, to uh, online bullying, to being mischaracterized and weaponized even amongst our own Democratic colleagues and in our caucus. And so there were many times it was very lonely. So there was a lot of trauma bonding, unfortunately. But now we're four years in. Uh, we're, we're battle tested. You know, our class was the first to come in in the midst of a government shutdown. Uh, we then had two impeachments, um, an insurrection, a global pandemic, um, and the list goes on. So, um, you know, I think we have built the organizational infrastructure. We've also built the um, emotional infrastructure to understand the algorithms of what can be incoming. Um, and to better manage it. And so now our sisterhood is not just about trauma bonding, it's about informing joy. It's about celebrating um, engagements and our children. And um, of course there's struggle in the work of justice, but there's joy too. And so mm -hmm. now we get to, to relish in that joy, even in the midst of the resistance and the struggle. I mean, battle test is an understatement. <laughs> But we, we love to see you all for sure. Um, I also wanted to talk about, because in 2020, I know that you were sharing with the public your alopecia diagnosis. And I remember the video, which was really vulnerable and transparent. Um, take me back to that moment where you, you know, were free to actually share your truth and, and decided to do that. So basically my journey, and a lot of people get this twisted and they think like I've had alopecia for a long time and was, you know, wearing wigs and braids to cover it, which is not true. Um, I lost all the hair on my head, face and body in a five week period. Um, oh, wow. So this was not something I was living with for a long time. It came on very suddenly. Um, it was a transformation, not of my choosing, very traumatic. And of course I have a platform, you know, somewhat high profile. And the first day that I wore a wig, which was the day after I went completely bald, 
after I left the House floor, having given my statement about why Donald Trump should be impeached, um, I went to the bathroom and I cried um, tears of heaviness, but also of clarity, because I knew that that was not going to be my walk, that I wanted to be transparent. Um, and, you know, I had a lot of fear about it because as a, as a black woman who did wear a protective hairstyle and those Senegalese twists and that representation meant so much to so many, you know, in my congressional run, little girls would be wearing T-shirts that said, my congresswoman after I won wears braids, um, rocks a black leather jacket and a bold red lip um, because, you know, that was disruptive according to conventional um, definitions of what a politician, quote unquote, should look like. Um, mm -hmm. And so I was so focused on what that constituency of black women and girls would feel they were losing by my losing uh, the power of that representation of a protective hairstyle of an of an ethnic or Afrocentric hairstyle that I hadn't considered what I would be gaining. Uh, and I did gain a lot. Um, and so I made that decision that, you know, look, I'm not here just to take up space. I'm here to create it. And I'm going to create this space and take up all the space um, with the representation of how I show up in the world uh, by, at this point, may not be forever, but, you know, choosing to walk this walk bald. And people will come up to me in restrooms, every, anywhere, you know, all, all day at, at community meetings, at town halls and airports, um, particularly black women, but not only black women. Um, you know, men and women of every race, and especially little kids, will come up to me and just tell me how much it means to them. Some of them will say, I'm wearing a wig because I don't feel as brave as you. And I always correct them and say, we're, we're all brave. You know, everyone has something that they're carrying, and we each choose to carry it differently. And mm -hmm. so for right now, for me, wearing a wig just felt like more armor to put on. So it felt heavy to me. And there's already enough armor I put on as a black woman. And so um, the other thing is, you know, my boo, my husband, um, <laughs> you know, he just uh, took such good care of me emotionally in that moment. And um, when I made that decision and, and it was his opinion that the hair had been getting in the way all this time. But now you can see... Um, my, my cheekbones and the almond shape of my eyes and my big forehead, which he loves, you know. <laughs> um, so he was like, you know, baby, the hair was in the way. Um, I don't think alopecia has robbed you of your beauty. I think it has revealed it. And you do not need a hair to have a crown. So I'm just, uh, you know, every time I say it, I almost cry because I just feel so blessed to have that kind of love, to have that kind of black love. Um, to be rooted in that kind of soil, which made this walk uh, that much easier. And even our daughter, I remember going to her dance recital maybe three days after my reveal through the root. And um, I felt like everyone was looking at me and I felt very self-conscious um, because I really didn't have any ramp up time. You know, this is like, okay, you're bald. And then I was in the world, you know, so there was no, and I was just going through this in real time. And, um, I said to my daughter, do I embarrass you? Um, and she said, you know, no, everyone's looking at you because you're so beautiful. So mm -hmm. I'm just very blessed. I've had a family who's wrapped around me and now an alopecia community and village. And, um, and now 
Um, I've used the power of my platform as a global, really, ambassador for alopecia awareness. I was honored by the Dermatology Association for the, the droves of, of women who were able to then get diagnosed or who were contacting dermatologists and saying, do I have this? I saw this video um, right. of people that were finally getting help. Um, so I've been able to use my the power of my platform and then also the power of my pen as a, as a advocate and legislator. Um, we were able to get um, to advance money in the budget for more research on alopecia and other autoimmune disease that disproportionately impact women of color. And I also wrote a bill with uh, a colleague in the mass delegation, Jim McGovern, for uh, medically durable wigs to be covered by insurance because they're incredibly cost pro prohibitive, especially mm -hmm. for our, our elders um, and our babies who are living with any sort of traumatic hair loss, be it from cancer or autoimmune diseases. That was really beautiful about your family. I Thank have to say. you. I'm I was about to cry listening to you. Yeah, no, I'm really fortunate. Yeah. <laughs> so sweet. Very blessed. Well, I did want to also talk about something that we write about on the Cotton New York Magazine a ton, which is abortion and reproductive rights. What are some of the the bright spots? Because, I, I mean, we report on this a ton, and I know personally and just reading it all the time that the reporting is really heavy and it can feel like there is no hope. What do you feel like the bright spots are when it comes to reproductive rights in this country right now? The bright side is that after for decades feeling like canaries in the coal mine, uh, most reproductive justice advocates and, and especially black women that people thought we were being, you know, hyperbolic or hysterical to say that Roe could be overturned, um, that people understand how real these threats are. They get that I believe that it is healthcare and a matter of freedom and bodily autonomy and other movements now see it as tied to their own. And so that's what we needed is for the movement to be one that was not marginalized, um, but one where people see it as a part of it, an intersectional and inclusive movement, whether you're talking about um, anti-black uh, rhetoric and policies that seek to disenfranchise us like voter suppression laws, whether you're talking about uh, anti-LGBTQ rhetoric and policies, or whether you're talking about the ways in which that fight, right, gender-affirming care and the bodily autonomy of reproductive justice um, are linked, or our, uh, our comrades in the fight for uh, Black maternal justice. If you're looking at a, um, a state of government mandated birth uh, that we know uh, without question will result in loss of life. So this is a matter of life and death. So yeah. I would just say, you know, the, the bright side um, is that I think more people see this fight as a shared fight, as their fight, as a collective fight, and more people understand that these the threats are real um, and how high the stakes are. And then finally, that uh, we're not backing down. And whether it's through litigation, legislation, or mobilization, uh, that we will keep fighting for abortion access because this is a matter of health care. And that is a fundamental human right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, how would you say that you are currently taking care of yourself in all of this and doing this really important work? Okay, I would just say, like, just literally in a day-to-day -day way. Yeah. Um, for me, that is still prayer, meditation, lots of affirmations, 
Um, and then more recently, again, I, I'm so blessed, but my husband gifted me um, four years ago with a soaking tub and it has been transformative. I was never a bath person. I used to make fun of people when people would say, what are you doing for self-care? And they would talk about baths and candles and I would be like, please. I mean, <laughs> what like a trite answer. I'm sure you don't even really take baths. I mean, I was very cynical about this. <laughs> I was like, sounds poetic, but not real. Um, and let me just tell you, I swear by them. When I'm you know, away from my family in DC, uh, sometimes, you know, two, three weeks at a time. And when I do come back to the district and I come back home to my family, uh, one of the first things I do to sort of ground myself and to decompress is just, is just soak, is to take a bath, have my lavender, be rocking out to some Sade or Summer wow. Walker or Jasmine <laughs> Sullivan or Janae, how do you say her name? Janae Eichel? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I'm 49. So, you know, I'm all about 90s R&B. So, you know, that's 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 the vibe. Um, but, you know, <laughs> so I'm now I've become the cliche. I light my candles, put on my <laughs> put on it's my not a cliche at all. I do the same thing. Do my bubbles. So, you know, it's a real thing. And then I'm gonna tell you the other thing that I do. And this is literal is. Um, you know, moisturize yourself. It's like, a, you know, I, I think I used to only, particularly in the winter, you know, you know, you lotion up your ankles and your feet and your elbows and your hands <laughs> and you keep them moving. But, you know, pour into yourself. So prayer, meditation, long baths um, and then affirmations. I love affirmations. I love poetry. And so the, the affirmation I'll leave you with is the one I've been using for the last four years that was gifted to me um, by my sibling in the movement, Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Um, oh, I love I, I got Brittany. a couple of text threads. We stand Brittany. Well, I got a couple of text threads with some really, really fire, fire women, but especially sisters. And this one that she gave me during the pandemic, I've used the most. And it's that I choose uh, the discipline of hope over the ease of cynicism. And I choose fortitude over fatalism. I choose the discipline of hope over the ease of cynicism. And I choose fortitude over fatalism. And so um, I love that one. And I know there've been many books written about the discipline of hope, but I had actually never heard that until Brittany said it. And uh, it was an important reminder that it is a practice. It isn't just some sort of organic feeling in the ether. Um, you know, it is a practice. And so um, I challenge myself every day to be disciplined in practicing it. That's beautiful. Um, so I'll close with what what advice would you give to the new generation that are wanting to get in politics? I mean, you're such a role model in many ways, but I know specifically if someone is wanting to get into politics, they are looking up to you. Um, and what are you hopeful about politically? I would say follow the work. And I think I'm I mean, I remember when I used to visit schools, Lindsay, I would visit schools and I would ask, raise your hand if you want to be an elected official. And like no one would raise their hand. OK, <laughs> now I go and a lot of kids will raise their hands. Yeah, and I'm so, sure. You know, that is the, the, a testament to more uh, representation, you know, in media and storytelling. Um, that is a, a testament to the increased representation that you see in every level of government. Um, but I think people think they can shorthand the journey and you have to follow the work. I never aspired. Well, let me, I can't say never, cause y'all do your Apple research. I was in high school named 
when I graduated senior year, most likely to be the mayor of Chicago. I have to say mm -hmm. that. And I was a competitive debater and always class president, student government president, and all those things. But I was doing those things to build myself up so I could build my community up. I was not doing anything to bolster a resume, to make me more competitive in a thing. I just followed the work. And ultimately, I ran for office on the federal level because I realized that every inequity, every disparity, every racial injustice is one that was legislated or codified in a budget. And then most of that started on the federal level. So even then, it was not the pursuit of a title. It wasn't the pursuit of a position. I was following the work. And so my okay. advice to people is if you shorthand the journey, if you try to skip steps, you are skipping lessons. And so I want to encourage you um, to extend grace and space to yourself, to be patient in this journey, and to follow the work. Um, I knew the impact I wanted to have, and then I sort of worked backwards. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? I wasn't, oh, one day I want to be this. And, you know, what are the pieces to get to that? It was, right. this is the impact I want to have in the world. How do I make good on the expectations my mother, may she rest in peace and power, poured into me? Baby girl, it is beautiful to be Black. Be proud of it. But you are being born into a struggle. And I have an expectation that you're going to do your part in that struggle. And that's mm -hmm. what I seek to do every day, is the work of Black liberation and all marginalized people. So follow the work. I love that. Thank you so much. That was so, that was, that felt like a TED talk. Okay. <laughs> we did it in 20 minutes. That Thank was beautiful. You. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. Appreciate the invitation and appreciate how you're using the power of the mic. <laughs> in Her Shoes is hosted by me, Lindsay Peoples. Our producer and editor for this episode is Taka Zen. Our engineer is Brandon McFarlane and our executive producer is Hannah Rosen. The Cut is made possible by the excellent team at New York Magazine. Subscribe today at thecut.com slash subscribe. I'm Lindsay Peoples, and thank you so much for listening. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement.